the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. AM. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word, we take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart or your mind, we'll do everything that we can to find the answers. Let me apologize to Cecilia from yesterday's program because I did not have even a moment to go check and and uh, do some research on the globe. So I will get that on Friday, Cecilia. The one thing I do want to correct everybody is I said that the pastor of Calvary Chapel of, Senator, of uh, Kerrville was Max Green yesterday. His name is Max Teague. Max Green was the very first boss I ever worked for. I was 16 years old at John McDonald's, and I, I'm thinking, uh-oh, my brain is starting to go now, or I'm reverting back to my childhood. But Cecilia, we'll get that question for you uh, before uh, we'll get it on Friday's program for sure. Here is the way you can call your uh, questions in. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585, or you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. You can send them that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Wednesday, we got two really neat things to tell share with you. One, tonight, um, I'm doing a study at the end of 2 Samuel 14 in the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, lots of warnings there for all of us. But the really exciting thing is that Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. Ladies, that's a day that we set aside especially for you. If you have any questions or need to be encouraged about anything, we will do the very best that we can to answer those questions. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. My first question comes from Angie today. She says, what does it mean to have a Christian world view. Well, Angie, I think um, what we would say as a Christian is different from what the world would say in terms of describing Christian worldview. I think the world would say that it means that we're conservative, that we uphold traditional family values, uh, those kind of things. But that's really not at all a Christian worldview at all. What it means to have a Christian worldview is to be with Jesus, to, to do what he would have you do, in all situations. It means to stand up for that which is right and be willing, if even at the expense of being ridiculed or, or attacked, be willing to say, I see this behavior, it's wrong. But a, a Christian worldview should be redefined as a biblical worldview. And the way the Bible portrays the people of God in this world is that we are lights in the darkness. 
Again, it doesn't mean that we're all right-wing Republicans. It doesn't mean that we all have the same agenda. It just means that we want to do what Jesus tells us to do. We deal with our problems, with our issues, um, according to the will of God for our lives. We do it uh, after much prayer. We do it after much study. Uh, because we want to know what Jesus would do in situations. I know most of you remember, um, it's been some years now, that uh, the WWJD bracelets were the big thing. And there were people that say, you Christians are so arrogant. How can you know what Jesus would do? Well, we can know because we have his word. So I think more than anything else, Angie, to have a Christian worldview means that we are for what Jesus is for. We are against what he is against. But primarily, it means that we're looking at people in this world through his heart. And it doesn't refer to, or it shouldn't anyway, it too often does, but it doesn't refer to a political party. Uh, I've had people actually tell me you can't be a Democrat and be a Christian. Well, of course you can. Of course you can. But what you've got to do is be willing to set aside your ideals for those that Jesus communicates to us in his word. So, Angie, that's what it means. I don't want everybody to get caught up in the political aspects of it or taking sides one against another. Here's what I say all the time. Christians, by definition, have to agree with Jesus. And if we don't agree with Jesus, then how can we claim to be his? An example is of a political hot-button issue is abortion. How can anybody be pro-abortion, the world says pro-choice, and claim to be a believer? Does a woman's right to control her own body, which is established law in our country, does that right trump the heart of God? And you see, what we've got to do is we've got to be willing to have our minds change. You know, when we get saved, and especially because we live in a fairly biblical, biblically illiterate church culture, once we start studying things and the Word of God begins to reveal the person of Jesus Christ to us, then we have to have a Christian worldview because He is the Christ. And the only way to do that is to agree with Him in all things. Here is a question from our email inbox anonymously, and I'm going to have to go very, very slow on this one because I want to be understood completely. Pastor Ron, you have often said that it isn't right for any woman to stay in a marriage with a physically abusive husband because ultimately he's misrepresenting the heart of God. Now let me stop there for a moment, Anonymous, because that's not the reason that we shouldn't stay in a physically abusive marriage. We shouldn't stay in a physically abusive marriage because you could lose your life. Yes, it misrepresents the heart of God. Yes, it does damage physically and emotionally to the woman. But God wants you alive. He wants you to be able to serve. God doesn't want any one of us to be in a situation where our lives are threatened. It's that simple. And one of the hardest things over these 23 years I've been a pastor is to convince women who are being habitually abused by their husbands to leave. How are we going to make money? What am I going to do with the kids? The only thing that matters is that you get out. You've got to stay alive. You can't serve Jesus if you're dead. So that's the reason why we are to leave physically abusive marriages. Again, it does misrepresent the heart of God, but that's not why we go. The rest of your question will explain why that's not why we go. Then... She says, you also say that emotional abuse is not grounds. Why is it then that emotional abuse isn't placed in the same category of misrepresenting the heart of God as physical abuse? Because neither form of abuse represents God's heart. Emotional abuse is also a form of violence that is equally devastating and can adversely affect the mental health of a victim, not to mention the harmful effects it can have on any children who may also be involved in, in witnessing the behavior. Anonymous, here's what I have said. When I said that it's not grounds, what I said is being married to a jerk isn't grounds for divorce. 
you know, so often we marry people, and and uh, even when Christians get involved marrying uh, unbelievers, well, there's going to be consequences to that. And while a man that's hurting you might kill you, or hitting you rather might kill you, and and then God says, get out, we've called us to live in peace. The truth is that in a home where a husband and wife isn't serving the Lord together, there's always going to be what some would call emotional abuse. Emotional abuse is something that you can't define. A husband who yells at you, that's not emotional abuse. The guy's being a jerk. A husband or a wife who says you'll never measure up. A wife who doesn't respect her husband. That's not emotional abuse. That's just somebody who doesn't care what the Bible says. And we live in such a touchy-feely, sentimental world. We throw out the A word, the abuse word. So regularly, it's like, well, I'm being emotionally abused. When in fact, your husband or your wife is just acting in their flesh. So all I said, Anonymous, was that it's not grounds for divorce. It does misrepresent the heart of God. A man who is emotionally abusive or a woman who is emotionally abusive is going to stand before God and give account of that. So all I said was that it's not grounds for divorce. It's certainly something that God hates. But we have spread way too wide this definition of abuse. I think, and at least I hope, it's evident to everyone listening that a woman who is being physically abused by somebody who is physically stronger is in danger, not just of being hurt, but of losing their lives. Somebody being a jerk isn't putting you in danger of losing your life. It is emotionally devastating. It does harm the children who are being raised in that house. But so too does any sin that goes on unchecked. You know, so often people want me to say, and I mean, I get a lot of pressure to say, emotional abuse is, is, is grounds for divorce, but you can't find that in your Bible. If you're married to an emotionally abusive man, 1 Peter chapter 3 is the way we respond. Many of you listening know this, but that's the passage of Scripture that saved my life. Paula was married to an emotionally abusive man. I was a jerk. But she won my heart. She won it for Jesus, but she also eventually won it for her. And the, the way she won it was by behaving in a godly manner. All too often in these emotionally abusive situations, and I don't even like using the word abuse. It's because the husband isn't being kind enough. So how do we deal with that? The same way we deal with people in the world, we win them over with the kindness of God. The husband's not meeting my needs. Well, let Jesus meet your needs. I think sometimes we forget, Anonymous, that our job as a believer married to an unbeliever. And I realize there are people that are professing Christians that are jerks and jerkettes. But treat them like an unbeliever if that's the way they're acting. And the way we do that is to win them to Christ. Submitting to their leadership, not putting yourself in danger, not doing illegal or immoral things. That's not something God ever asks us to do. But the man who says you're not pretty enough, you're not thin enough, you're not smart enough, the man who's always belittling you is a very, very small man. And you want to leave that small man in the hands of God rather than trying to take matters into your own hands. Once again, First Peter chapter 3 tells us specifically what we're to do in situations like that. So it's very important you understand correctly what I said. Yes, it misrepresents the heart of God. But you're not in a physically dangerous situation. I think sometimes we need to remember that we chose these men. 
or we chose these women. Sometimes we did it without consulting God. Then when we get saved and we want a godly marriage, we see so many of them in the churches we attend. And then we start to get a little envious of those godly marriages. Well, Jesus' answer would be to make your marriage godly. Do as much as you can as far as it depends on you. And when you're being obedient, the Lord's grace will be sufficient. With the advent of the internet and websites and blogs, we've changed the meaning of terms. When you're being beaten by a man, you are being abused. When a man is raising his voice at you or acting in an unchristlike way, when he's accusing you of things or not concerned about your emotional well-being, he's just a jerk. And the answer to a jerk is Jesus. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. I can't tell you how much pressure there is to, to just sort of go with the flow as the world changes the meaning of things. My last comment on this, and then we'll go to Lucy's question. My last comment is this. If you are in a home where you are being physically abused, get out now. I don't know a single church that wouldn't help you go to your pastor, go to somebody in leadership and let them know what's going on. If they tell you do anything other than leave, then you know you're not getting godly counsel. Leave and leave now. If you have children, take your children with you. Because eventually they too could be in danger. That is not an environment Jesus wants you to be in. Now, does he want you to be in an environment where somebody's yelling at you or belittling you? No, he doesn't. I think sometimes we have to toughen up a little bit. And let Jesus meet your needs. He will do that, I promise. Here is a question from Lucy. She asks, why does it seem that Christians are so homophobic? Jesus said we are to love our neighbors. Yes, Lucy, Jesus did say that we're to love our neighbors. But we're not loving our neighbors, at least not the biblical definition of love, by approving of a lifestyle that's going to result in them spending eternity in hell. You love your neighbors by sharing with them the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. And here's another time where we've allowed the media to reframe an argument. Homophobic, when we tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong, that it's evil, that it separates them from God, that's the most loving thing that we can do, Lucy. And I think you need to get your mind more in line with the Word of God than the word of the world that we live in. I'm sure there are professing Christians that are homophobic and don't love those who are practicing a sinful lifestyle. But that's between them and God. He'll deal with them. But we who are real Christians, we love people so much that we tell them the truth about what they're doing the cost or the consequences of what they're doing and then we offer them a better way and that better way is of course our Jesus so just because I say something is wrong this behavior is wrong that doesn't make us homophobic at all what it makes us is concerned about their eternal salvation Lucy what's really unloving what is really not of God 
It's just letting someone send themselves to hell without letting them know there's a better way. I hope that makes sense to you. You know, sometimes I think, I know it's not true, but sometimes I think the world is winning, certainly winning the media war, winning the war on redefining terms and words. Remember the picture of the church? Old Testament knew is that it's a remnant. By definition, a narrow road that few find. So we're always going to be in the minority. But as Christians, I'll say it as I answered the first question, we have to agree with Jesus. And that means when somebody's living a lifestyle that's sinful, we have the responsibility to tell them, not to shout at them, not to paint ugly words on posters, not to get on Facebook and engage in arguments or debates, but simply to look into people's eyes and look through their eyes into their hearts and tell them that they're missing out on the one who loves them so much he died for their sins. He's the one who will change them. We can't. So our message is simply that. Here is a question from our mobile app from Joel. He says, I heard that Christians cannot eat pork. Is that true? I need my ribs and bacon. Seriously, though. No, I'm serious, Joel. I'm with you on the bacon, especially. Seriously, though, I'm a little concerned. I don't think it's true, but would you please clarify this point for me? This is a real thing for me because I've heard of addicts having a hard time giving their drugs. I don't think I can give bacon up. Joel, I don't want to live in a world without bacon, so I'm with you on this. Um, Christians can eat anything they want to eat. Acts chapter 10, God declared all foods clean. The Gospel of Mark makes a reference as well. The Jewish dietary law prohibited the eating of pork and many other things. But that's not true for Christians. So whoever told you that doesn't know what he or she is talking about. So don't worry about it. Enjoy your bacon. You know, I always have this picture, Joel, of Peter, you know, after having the vision of that sheet descending, angels holding the four corners. That represented, of course, the this was four corners of the earth so this was a worldwide thing and Jesus said to the sheet containing all kinds of unclean food rise Peter kill and eat and Peter of course said no Lord not me I've never eaten anything unclean and Jesus said don't call anything I've made clean unclean and Peter finally got the message wouldn't you have liked to have been there when Peter had his first bite of bacon Thank you, Jesus, he would have said. One of the things I love to do, I take kids out and we take them to breakfast sometimes, uh, the little ones, especially the tiny ones, and we get to give them their first piece of bacon sometime. And the look on their face is like, I found you. This is the meaning of life. So I'm not being silly here, but you can eat what you want to eat. Anything you can eat with Thanksgiving is okay for you to eat. So whoever told you that, Joel, does not know what they are talking about from the book we're saying. Eat and be free. 340-9585 for your calls and Bible questions. Um, Wanda, I've got two and a half minutes. Okay, thank you. Wanda wants to know, in reading Acts 2, it seems like Christians should support a more socialistic form of government. Am I reading it right? No, Wanda, you're not. Acts chapter 2 has nothing to do or to say whatsoever about a form of government or an economic system. Acts chapter 2 is a commentary on one thing and one thing only, and that's love. When they gave to each as they had need, I want you to remember the context Thousands of people are beginning are getting saved. This is the brand new church. It's just the beginning. And in a Jewish construct, and everyone was a converted Jew, they would lose their families, they would be kicked out of their homes. 
Jewish families would often hold funerals for them like they were dead. And so they were all alone. And in the early church, with thousands upon thousands of people, there's upwards of 20,000 people in the first week of the church who've now given their heart to Jesus. They would think, well, what's next? What's new? Well, they would have to go where they could be with one another. And that's why Barnabas sold everything and laid it at the feet of the apostles. It wasn't a command for you and for me. This was a commentary on love. And that commentary is simply this. They couldn't bear to see someone in need. If they had the ability to fix it, to solve it, they did it. They did it because they loved Jesus. They did it because they loved their brother or sister, even if they didn't know him. So that's not socialism at all. That's what it looks like in Jesus' church. And it ought to look much like that still to this very day. So again, Acts chapter 2 is not a commentary at all on a government or an economic form. It's simply a comment on the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Wanda, thanks. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love some live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We will be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh we are back waiting for your phone calls the phones have been really quiet for about the last oh i don't know four or five programs um some opportunity to get right in and answer any question here's a question from phil uh, please explain the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Also, what is the role of the church in the Great Tribulation? Phil, the difference in the rapture and the second coming is, is simple and wonderful. The rapture is going to occur prior to the Great Tribulation. Uh, it's a time when Jesus doesn't come to earth, but he calls us to be with him where he is. John chapter 14 do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would tell you, I'm coming back to take you to be with me where I am. So that's the rapture of the church. It is an escape from the time that's described as the worst time in history. No time before or after will ever be like it. It's a time when God's wrath is being poured out. The reason he takes us isn't just because he's doesn't want us to be in that difficult time. It's because God cannot pour out his wrath on those of us who have already been made righteous by the blood of Christ. So that's the rapture. It's going to happen seven years before the second coming. The second coming, you can read about that in Revelation chapter 19. It's when Jesus comes to the earth to reclaim what is rightfully his. Now, we're going to be with him. His reward, his inheritance is going to be with him. That's us. And we're going to come, and he's going to destroy every enemy. And that's when he will begin establishing his millennial reign for a thousand years on earth. So the second coming is that moment when Jesus sets everything that's wrong right. And that's coming to this earth. So the rapture we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. He's not coming to the earth for that. But when he comes a second time, he's going to set one foot on one side of the Mount of Olives, the other foot on the other, and there's going to be a great earthquake. The Mount of Olives is going to split in two, and that's when he's going to destroy his enemies. So that's the second coming. Now, the role of the church in the Great Tribulation, if I understand your question right, if you're thinking about the church as we understand it, uh, the brotherhood of born-again believers, we won't be here, Phil. So we don't have a role. Now, in the Great Tribulation, led by the ministry of the two witnesses and the 144,000 witnesses, um, there's going to be a great revival. And when people give their heart to Jesus, and, and it will be the by far the greatest revival in the history of the world, when people give their life to Jesus, then they become a part of the church. 
But remember, the church in general is gone, so it's different. It's different. So the church as you see the church or understand the church has no role at all because we won't be here. But uh, the people who come to faith in Christ, they will have a role, and their role will be to witness the goodness of God. And by the way, they'll have to stand through some really great and difficult times. Let's go now to line one from San Antonio. Roger, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you. I have a question about salvation. Is it totally separate from the desire to to be holy and a sanctified life, or is sanctification and separation from the world part of the salvation process? Please explain salvation to me in, in those terms, and I'll hang up and listen to you, okay? Okay. Thank you, Roger. Great question. Um, without being saved, Roger, uh, there, there can be no desire to live in holiness. Uh, we can try to keep some rules. We can try to live right, or we can try to be good or better than other people. But the truth is that's always doomed to fail because in our flesh is nothing good. So the best person in the world is a sinner destined for an eternity in hell. However, once we meet Jesus, that desire for personal holiness comes from him. In him is light. There is no darkness at all. And and when he comes and lives within us in a relational way, there's not a little Jesus running around in us, Roger, but when he comes to live us in a relational way, then the desires that are his ought then to become our desires. One of the reasons that we're to judge fruit is because if somebody has no desire for personal holiness, then it's an indication that they don't know Jesus at all. The fact that they may have said a prayer, they've been baptized or something, doesn't mean at all that they are are saved. It just means that they've had an emotional experience or, or they, they want to cover all their eternal bases. But until we are saved, that's the first thing. The Holy Spirit first comes beside us, then we say yes to Jesus. He comes beside us to convict us of sin, of righteousness and judgment. Then when we say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, he comes in us. And then he comes up on us in power. But all of that is a result of having been saved. Sanctification, Roger, is the thing that takes place the moment you're saved. We begin a process, and it's a lifelong process, of sanctification. And that's when we're set apart for the purposes of God. I don't know if you're a golfer, Roger, or not, if you have any reference to golfing, but, you know, in a golf bag, there's 14 clubs, and every club has a different purpose. There's a club for putting, there's a club for hitting it far, there's clubs for hitting it short. Well, in the body of Christ, God, like those clubs, sets all of us apart for different purposes. We have one overarching purpose, and it's to serve God. But he gives us different gifts, different paths, different roads to travel. And the Holy Spirit is with us and in us and comes upon us with enough power to every day become a little more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. Now, the sanctification process can go very, very quickly for some. Again, we never get to that place where we're completely sanctified until we're with him. That won't be the case. But he will sanctify us and separate us as quickly as we allow him to do so. When we say, Lord, you take my life, Lord, I'm yours, then he'll take that life. He takes very seriously the things that we commit to, and we will begin to find ourselves more and more and more like Jesus. When he is sanctifying us, we're in this process, we're going to have a desire, a hunger for God's word. And then the Spirit working through the word of God is going to use the word to make us understand who Jesus is, what he's like, and how we can become more like him. So that's the sanctification process. So we are born again, or justified at that moment, just as if we'd never sinned. But that's when this process of sanctification, of being more like Jesus every day, begins. And it, it, it continues. I would like to think, Roger, and I'm sure you would as well, that I'm a whole lot more like Jesus than I was when I got saved. Um, but if we really want to be like him, the only way that happens is to be with him, to learn about him, to grow in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his will, Paul writes. 
And that's what the sanctification process is. And our goal, all of our goal, Roger, should be at that moment where um, we see Jesus face to face and he looks at us like we're chips off the old block. We should look just like Jesus. Not physically, of course, but in terms of spiritually. Sanctification is the process of working out. I'm going to use Paul's terms in Philippians chapter 2, working out our salvation, not working for, but working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, the fear of not being in the will of God. Trembling because we sometimes look at sin way too lightly. We try to compromise. There are times, Roger, when we try to see how much we can get away with and still be saved. Well, the process of sanctification is getting us all to that place where we want to see how close we can be to Jesus instead of how close we can be to sin. So I hope that answers your question. Sanctification is a great process. You might read Romans chapter 7, Roger, because Paul talks about his own sanctification process there. And even as he wrote this famous letter to the Romans, he was still in the process of being sanctified. So we're not sanctified until we're saved. Once we're saved, then we have a desire for holiness. And that's really what sanctification uh, represents. It's, it's a desire to walk with Jesus, to be more like him. Uh, the Apostle John writes that if we claim to be his, we have to walk in the light because he is the light. We can't continue to sin and say we belong to him. If we do that, he says we're liars and the truth isn't in us. So what we all need to do is let the sanctification process take place day after day, day after day. Not looking at it in terms of a big picture, but instead just, Jesus, what about me and what about today? And being with him. The payoff, Roger, is simple. When you're with Jesus, you don't want to be anywhere else. When you're with Jesus, you hate those times when we fail and we slip into sin. You hate those times when you realize it's been two, three, four hours and you haven't even thought about God. I mean, that's why it's a process. It takes some time. But the more time you spend with Jesus, the faster that time is going to go. So, Roger, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. That is a wonderful question. Here is a question from Charles. He said... Pastor Ron, I know Adam's sin caused mankind to be sinners, but why should we be penalized for Adam's sin? Charles, there's no place in the Bible where uh, you're penalized for Adam's sin. When you stand before God, when the books are opened, as friend or foe, by the way, as Christians, we're going to be judged at the reward seat and the bema seat of Christ, and the books are going to be opened. And what we're going to be judged for is whether our works were good or good for nothing, whether our works were motivated by our love for God or whether we were doing them for selfish reasons or personal reasons. But nowhere does it say either as a believer or an unbeliever at the great white throne judgment, nowhere does the Bible indicate that we're going to be judged for Adam's sin or that we're going to be penalized for Adam's sin. We inherited his sin nature. That's true. But the only sins that you're ever going to answer for, Charles, are your own. Not your parents, not your children, not your friends, not the people in church. Just your own. When the book is opened, it's a book of your life. And when that book is open, we're not going to be able to stand there and say, well, wait a minute, that's not what I meant. I was doing this, or you you don't understand I was having a bad day that day. There's going to be no defense, no excuse. What it means is that when Jesus says, this sin, guilty, this sin, guilty, it's a heavy thing for an unbeliever because every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. Well, for those people who stand before him as an enemy of God, that's going to be a terrifying moment, a prelude to eternity and torment. So... I'm never going to answer for Adam's sin. I'm going to answer for my own. And even though, Charles, that we inherited a sin nature, we who are believers, we have the power that raised Christ and the dead living in us. We can say no. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, 
No sin, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. So that means we don't have to sin. When we do, those are the sins we're going to answer for. The unbelieving world, for those of us who are believers, of course, Jesus became sin so that we might become his righteousness, his perfection. And so we're going to give account of his life rather than our own. So don't buy the lie that will... Adam sinned, so we had no choice every day. Every day, Charles, you have a choice to serve God or to serve you. To live in holiness, to walk in holiness, or to walk in sin. Paul says we're slaves to one or the other, slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, and we have the power to make that choice. Raymond wants to know... Do you believe the letters to the seven churches are only historical, or do you believe that they have prophetic properties as well? Well, Raymond, um, in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, um, the writer declares, the Apostle John is the writer, declares that the entire book is a prophecy. Not just the parts that we would deem future, but the entire book is a prophecy. So what that means is when we get to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we have a situation where seven letters are being written to seven real historical churches, but they also have prophetic value. Chapter 1, verse 19 of Revelation says that John is to write what he's seen, That's Revelation chapter 1. That's Jesus in all of his glory. Then he says, write the things that are. That's the church age in John's day. That's the seven letters to the seven churches. And then the things that will be, the things that are to come. So what we have to understand if we read chapter 1 carefully that the entire book is a prophecy, not just from chapter 4 forward. So, obviously, they have prophetic properties, both short-term and long-term fulfillment. What that means with the seven letters is that seven, and, and the reason Jesus chose seven churches, there are many, many more churches, and by the way, there are many, many more influential churches than the ones that were chosen. But Jesus was assigning prophetic value to them. They represent seven ages of church history. And if you're a student of church history, you can pretty much see that this church goes to here and this church goes to here. and Historically, it follows a pattern. I personally believe, Raymond, that there are also personal prophetic values in those churches because every church has all seven churches in them. Here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Friday, we have a representative from each of those seven churches. And remember, there's only two churches that Jesus had nothing bad to say about, and only one of those two churches that, that Jesus would, would describe as exemplary. Of course, that's the church at Philadelphia, which, by the way, was a very small, persecuted church. There are Christians who represent Philadelphia. Unfortunately, there are Christians who represent Laodicea and all the other churches in between. So yes, they have prophetic properties and it's very important. It is a significant study to do. Raymond, if you are interested, you can go to calvaryessay.com I have done several studies uh, through the book of Revelation. I think we've been through it three times, maybe four times as a church. Um, uh, but, but all you have to do is start at uh, chapter 2. And if memory serves, what I did was one church per week. So there's actually uh, seven different Bible studies on the seven churches. And we talk about the historical value and the personal prophetic value and how they have application value for those of us who live some 2,000 years later. 
So, Raymond, I hope that helps. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Rodney. He said, do you believe that where God guides, God provides? Rodney, I do, but but let me be a little more specific. That's actually uh, something that that, uh, my pastor, Chuck Smith, before he went to be with Jesus, used to say all the time. Where God guides, God provides. And, and unfortunately, what too many of us understood that to mean is that if we're where God wants us to be, we'll have everything that we need. I don't believe that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. And a lot of times these tests are tests of our faith. And You don't always have what you need. Are you going to trust God when you don't have what you need, materially or otherwise? You see, that's the nature of the test. So I believe that where God guides, God provides. Having said that, I want to be very, very clear here. Um, If you've been listening to this program, you know we do everything free here. We have a free school. Uh, It costs a fortune. And we have no money. And people say, well, that's not God providing. Well, we're, we've been doing it for 18 years. We're getting ready to start our 19th year of this free school. We have a free family practice doctor's office, a medical clinic. Uh, also with a, a, a pediatrician and a PA and a nutritionist. This stuff costs a lot of money. And people can go to the doctor for free. No insurance, no anything. We have... Not one dime. We've been open a little more than five years now at Malta Medical. And um, not one dime has passed hands. Not one insurance claim has been filed. Why? Because that's what Jesus told us to do. And we are always broke. I mean, we're so broke, it's crazy. But going into our 19th year of school, we're in our sixth year of the medical clinic, And then there are other things that we do. And God keeps us really, really on our knees. But he's always provided. What it does not mean, Rodney, is that you can measure whether or not you're in the will of God by whether or not you have money in the bank. It's very important you understand that. Thank you for the question. And you know, that gives me an opportunity. I'd love for those of you in the audience to be praying for our school, be praying for our finances, be praying for um, Mana House, Malta Medical, all the other things. God has given us a ministry that we're very honored and privileged to have, but make no mistake, it's difficult. And if you looked at it from the outside, you could easily come to the conclusion, well, God's not in this, because if God was in it, you'd have the money you need to do everything. We just haven't found that to be true. By the way, neither did the Apostle Paul. Read in Second Corinthians about all the things that he encountered. He's gone hungry with food, without food. He was naked and cold. Other times, well-fed and warm. But it's pretty safe to say that he was in the will of God. Very, very important. Here is a question from Brandon. Pastor Ron, is there anything that can be done about the huge number of young people leaving the faith? Brandon, there isn't a huge number of young people leaving the faith. They're leaving a church building. They're leaving the way they were raised. They're leaving the things they were taught. But they never were part of the faith if they can leave it. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He also said in his prayer to his Father, I've not lost one that you've given me except the one doomed for, destined for destruction. Jesus still isn't in the process of, or in the business rather, of losing anyone. He said, I hold you in my hand and no one can snatch you out. 
the Father who's greater than I holds you in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Why is it that we have this tendency to think that just because a kid was raised in church, he goes to college and disowns everything that he was ever taught? What makes you think he was a believer? I think sometimes we're looking for programs or we're looking for mechanisms that will secure people in their faith when only the Holy Spirit can do that. A lot of times when these young people go into the work world or go to college and they're exposed to the freedoms that this world, not really freedom, but the freedom to sin, those are tests of those people and the real believers may dabble in sin they may jump wholeheartedly into sin they may come home and announce that they're gay, they may come home and announce that they're leaving the church but the real ones, God always gets back doesn't mean we don't struggle, what it means is that Jesus never loses that struggle so I think we have to be not persuaded by the culture. You know, what we want to do is have a program that will keep kids from being deceived. The kid leaves home at 18, 19, 20 years old. He or she has to grow up and be an adult. they got to make their own choices because we get to a place, Brandon, where mom and dad's faith isn't going to be able to be their faith. They've got to have their own relationship with God. A lot of that is by design. By design. Tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 14, the end of it and the beginning of chapter 15. Tomorrow, beautiful Paul will be live in studio with me. Ladies, it's your day on the Day Day program. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back on AM 630, The Word, tomorrow at 4. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.